Welcome to the KnoxCast, where we talk to the community about all things Knox. My name is Mitch Prentice, and welcome to part two of our chat with local historian Rex Charrington. If you haven't already listened to part one, we highly recommend it. In this episode, Rex shares in-depth stories about the early days of Knox College, as well as the stories of many prominent figures buried within Hope Cemetery. Enjoy! Let's rewind here a little bit to the founding years of Knox again. We, let's talk about the founders a little bit, the people who actually put the college together um, and uh, just kind of talk about their history a little bit. Sure. Well, I like to emphasize when we talk about the founders of Galesburg that it was really 232 people who came out here who were the founders of Knox College. Uh, Galesburg is incidental to the founding of Knox College. They came here for the purpose of founding a college. Uh, and uh, while Reverend Gale was a visionary uh, uh, who, who came up with a circular and plan and, and organized it, uh, we must talk about Sylvanus Ferris. And I wanted to mention that both Reverend Gale and Sylvanus Ferris are buried in Hope Cemetery, as are many members of the Gale family and many members of the Ferris family. And uh, Nehemiah Losey, uh, for, uh, talking about the first faculty, he was uh, uh, mathematics, um, what science they had at the time, he would have been in that area. He was the surveyor uh, for the original village and, uh, of course, was on the original board of trustees of Knox College. Uh, almost all of the 232 original founders of Knox College are buried in Hope Cemetery. And I think that is significant because we find in tracing um, most people through the settlement of this area that they are here for a while and they move on. Eventually these families did move on, uh, but the fact that we have such a high number of the original settlers is, is somewhat unusual. I think that it's important um, to recognize Galesburg's history for being something other than ordinary. These people were motivated by ideals. Uh, they had uh, goals that had to do with education and, as I mentioned, uh, anti-slavery and uh, moral reform people. Most of the real estate, most, most cities start because there's a place on a river that looks like a good place where you can dock a boat and you can buy the land and you can subdivide it and start selling off land, uh, more of a financial motive. Well, the people who, who founded Knox College combined the two. They saw an opportunity which was not an easily recognizable opportunity. Most people were looking at waterways at the time they came out here and bought this land that was high and dry. And, uh, well, it was swampy, but what I mean is not navigable, no navigable streams. They bought an entire township without a navigable stream on it. Uh, so uh, that's uh, uh, what sets, I think, Galesburg's founding apart from the founding of other communities. Um, as far as um, uh, the founding of the college, well, uh, you had a very small faculty at first. You had the Knox Academy, as I mentioned at first, uh, the prep school to get enough uh, uh, people to actually form a college, that first college class. And whether they used the word freshman at that time, I just don't know if that was part of the vocabulary. Talk about some of the uh, some of the infrastructure here. So, Alumni Hall, Old Main, Seymour Library. Some of the ones that 
you know, when when Knox gives tours in 2023, you know, history is yeah. the name of the game, right? I mean, there's a lot of history here. You know, some of the more well-known history, Abe going through the window and such. But in terms of actually putting the infrastructure and the buildings in place here, when did when did the college start taking shape? Well, uh, the early structures were uh, East Bricks and West Bricks. West Brick was the last to go uh, when Alumni Hall was built. Uh, East Bricks would have been still standing at the time of the Lincoln-Douglas debate for sure, and it was a fairly new building then. Uh, they're referred to mostly as dormitories, but also it seems that they lived, the men, and was, these would have been the men's dormitories. Men and women were kept quite apart. Um, and it appears that those buildings may also doubled as classrooms. The classes would have been very small then. Mm-hmm. Uh, women were kept separately. Um, uh, Whiting Hall, which was in those early days called Knox Female Seminary, and it was on Seminary Street it's at the beginning, and I believe there was a fire there also. Uh, Whiting Hall and uh, Old Main were both built out of the wealth that came from the railroad. Uh, out here where we call the classification yard or the hump yard where the trains are put together, and it's a very large one, debates on whether we were bigger than Kansas City or vice versa, but it's a very large classification yard. That was a lot of land. And that was money coming into the community because that actually would have been the Northern Cross out of Quincy uh, that would, have, because of the juncture was up here um, a little well, close to the Knox College campus. Everything close south of that uh, was uh, sold to the Northern Cross. So that was a big uh, infusion of money. Uh, and out of that railroad uh, growth, of course, came everything else. I like to say that the railroad is the first big business, and it makes every other big business possible or necessary. Makes sense, yeah. And uh, so the, uh, uh, like George W. Brown I'd mentioned before, uh, and, and invented a corn planter. Well, he was making them on a small scale out in Warren County, just west of Lake Story, not too far into Warren County. And uh, the railroad came, and, well, no-brainer. <laughs> you know, he wants to get into Galesburg because he wants to ramp up his business, and he needs the railroad. And he even locates uh, a distance from the railroad, and they won't build him a siding, so he starts his own railroad that's three blocks long. And uh, so, you know, the uh, railroad is just the, the big game-changer all the way around as far as the infrastructure uh, in the early days. Um, that has to be, you know, the big the big game changer is the railroad. And as you would like mention with the um, closure of Lombard, when when that closed and, and and Knox became the primary college in town, was that a moment of well, like you said, it was kind of during a hard time for the country. Um, but was around that era, was there a boom? Was there a Knox boom at some time around that time frame? Well, if you look at when the buildings were built, getting back to that, we talked about uh, Whiting Hall was built with the prosperity of the railroad, and uh, Old Main was built with the prosperity of the railroad. Uh, Alumni Hall, of course, comes a number of years later, and I'll save that. But uh, uh, when you look at Seymour Library, I think it's 1927, and Seymour Union, again, pre-crash. No more buildings until a lot later, till I think the Memorial Gymnasium, perhaps. Uh, 
So yes, uh, uh, if you look at the buildings and, and look at the scale uh, of where the money, uh, how, how do you scale that to the economy? Uh, until we got into the post-World War II economy, uh, Knox was in a lull that way, but continued to grow because of excellent academics, attracting students, attract, attracting more students from out of the immediate area. And um, uh, with post-World War II and early post-World War II, material shortages, labor shortages, um, building wasn't really possible. Uh, so then Knox gets into a second period of expansion, which I'll talk about when I give the tour in the fall. And, um, and then that's when you really see uh, the positive effects of the post-World War II consumer economy and how it benefited Knox College. When, when uh, and maybe you don't have the context for this question, but around what time frame was the international population of Knox starting to take off? That's obviously, uh, I think, 20% of the student base right now is international. I was here 1969 through 72, and then I went the other direction and went to Japan to study. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> talking <laughs> about international students, I was one of them <laughs> in another country. Uh, I would say, and I'm estimating this, but at the time I was at Knox, and uh, let's just say early 70s, uh, it would have been something more like 2% probably. I'm just guessing. Uh, but I'm just thinking of the people I knew. And, of course, you know, it was a small enough school you kind of knew a little bit, especially if it was a foreign. If someone was a foreign student here, they got noticed. Uh, and I would say it was about 2% then. As far as knowing the curve as to... What years were the most increase? I couldn't tell you on yeah. that. Yeah, but that's interesting because what, what time frame were you here? 1969, the fall of 69 is when I started here. Okay. And then uh, I, was gra I got my degree in the class of 73, but I was not here for commencement because I was still in Japan and my grades got in, so I got my degree later on in the year. So even just 50 years ago then, you're, you're estimating 2%. I, mean, I, that's, I think that would be a fair yeah. estimate. I really do. That's, a, that's quite a curve then. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious, um, you know, looking at the uh, founding principles of the college and then looking at the modern representation for the college as a liberal arts experience, right? Um, when did that really take place? Well, um, okay, uh, we'll go back to what I'd mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, Reverend Hiram Kellogg uh, was the first president of the college. Reverend Jonathan Blanchard was the second one. Reverend George W. Gale. Um, uh, we really started to change when we got, when Knox College, I say we because I'm, I'm here. I understand. <laughs> I'm part of you. Um, uh, Newton Bateman. Uh, was the first, uh, and actually he had some theological training early on, uh, but didn't pursue it. He got into education, he was down at Jacksonville, Illinois, became the superintendent of schools for that county, went on to become uh, the uh, Illinois uh, superintendent of schools for the state, and, uh, and then Knox College hired him. And he had uh, a different vision, more or less the liberal arts. It's, it's really the time when we can say we're looking at, uh, at liberal arts as we know it today, uh, incorporating all of the disciplines, um, not rejecting the religion. They still had chapel for students, but um, he brought military science to Knox College for the first time. 
Got someone from Germany, as I recall, to teach it. Newton Bateman's also buried at Hope Cemetery, and getting back to Hope Cemetery. In that, you might say, crop of students, um, Newton Bateman years, uh, you have such people as S.S. McClure, McClure's Magazine, and at one time went to more homes than any other magazine in the country. He's also buried at Hope Cemetery. He, he married uh, George Hurd's daughter. George Hurd was uh, one of the, if not the original faculty, certainly very, very early. And uh, George Hurd would have been the, the science, uh, teaching sciences here. So uh, uh, then you have Avery, uh, Cyrus Minor Avery is in that crop, you might say, of the Newton Bateman era, who becomes a very successful businessman. Uh, one time, Avery Manufacturing was the largest employer in Peoria. And uh, the, he built uh, the Avery House, which is now the Knox College President's Home. We often refer to it as Ingersoll. Ingersoll's owned it later. In fact, uh, Avery's were responsible for bringing Ingersoll's to Galesburg. But uh, Avery was uh, one of the chair, uh, chair of the fundraising committees building Alumni Hall. Alumni Hall was uh, built in three parts. Well, it was f money was raised in three parts. Who knows how they built it? But, but in any case, the... Uh, uh, the Gnatii and the Adelphi were the uh, societies, literary societies, and uh, they, those alumni did some fundraising to build those wings, and the central part was the alumni building, which it says on the building, alumni building, and uh, Avery uh, was then still living in Peoria, but he was the chair of the fundraiser to build the biggest share of, of alumni hall, another good reason to remember him. Also to remember the Avery family because his father was a ardent abolitionist, underground railroad man, very, very uh, outspoken, was a deacon in the church, uh, part of First Church, but a Congregationalist and stayed with Congregationalism and at Central Congregational Church uh, is a big bell in the tower. And it was uh, created by melting down other bells in town when Central Congregational. And it's dedicated to Deacon George Avery. Uh, so um, uh, Avery's, um, uh, Cyrus Minor Avery is buried in Hope Cemetery. Deacon George Avery, of course, is there. The, the brother, Robert, uh, is buried in Peoria. Uh, he did not move back to Galesburg. But in any case, uh, infrastructure, going back to thinking about uh, that and where the money came from, uh, Newton Bateman's presidency resulted in quite a number of people who were very successful in business. And the Adelphi and the Natii were, were interesting as literary societies because they were fiercely competitive. And I sort of say this jokingly, but it might have been an experiment in education. Uh, you give them the books, you give them the tools, and then just turn them loose on each other and see what they're going to come up with. And uh, we had a lot of very successful business people came out of that era. And Alumni Hall stands as a, a result of that fundraising. So let's uh, let's dial back and kind of focus on one of your most prominent knowledge bases, which is the Hope Cemetery itself and the many people within it. Um, I'll let you start wherever you think is the best place to start with uh, the uh, probably over hundreds of uh, graves out there and people who made an impact on this area. Sure, there are thousands of graves out there. Hope Cemetery, as it exists today, is about 14.3 acres. Uh, it's been added on to three times and subtracted once. That was for the Santa Fe Railroad. So a little uh, area was sold off when the railroad came through. 
the um, uh, first three burials I'd mentioned uh, in 1836, before there was a Knox College, before there was a Galesburg. Uh, these men died, and uh, the only one we can point to today is Isaac Mills. Uh, Captain Smith's family uh, left. Uh, they went right back to New York. They did not stay. The Mills family did stay. And that is why I think we have a monument where we can point to their burial. Lyman's went back to New York. Uh, so I'm going to just speculate that the three were most likely buried about in the same area because there would be no reason to go scattering them out when three died. I'm sure they had the funeral for all three of them at once. So probably where Mills is, uh, Isaac Mills is buried is where the uh, three would be buried. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the other er er early burials, well, let's just say, okay, the number of burials is in the thousands, and I can't remember right now, and uh, probably over 10,000 people buried there. But that many? Wow. Yeah. I would not have guessed that for the size of a 10,000 plus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're packed together pretty tightly. Yeah. yeah. Back in the old days, they didn't have vaults. So a uh, coffin, a uh, size of a lot for a coffin is smaller. And later when they got to vaults, they really had to be careful uh, putting them in because they're almost edge to edge uh, in there. So they're packed in pretty tightly. Uh, we have so many different tours of Hope Cemetery and so many ways to approach it. Uh, we have railroad tours. Uh, most people have heard of... Uh, uh, the role that Chauncey Colton and Silas Willard played in raising that $50,000 to bring the railroad to Galesburg. Both of them are buried there. Uh, we have a name, man by the name of Robert Colville who worked 50 years as the uh, uh, head mechanic and superintendent. Uh, in other words, the top boss in the, in the old roundhouse, which was the machine shop. He was a machinist from Scotland. And uh, oddly enough, he got killed by a, a railroad engine um, when he... He was still working at a very old age, uh, uh, and maybe his glasses were fogged up, and some say, well, why didn't he hear the engine? Well, he was an old man. Maybe he was deaf from working around engines all his life. Plus, there would have been the sounds of engines all around him. He died near the roundhouse. It was thought that there was so much steam being emitted by these steam locomotives that probably his glasses were fogged. And so we have people who worked for the railroad, investors who brought the railroad here. Uh, we have one fellow who was assassinated in the rail strike in 1888. For what, for what reason? Uh, the strike, uh, a confrontation between a replacement worker and a striking worker. Wow. Uh, the striking worker was never tried, uh, but he died not long after, and he's also buried uh, so we have the guy who got killed and the guy who shot him, and everybody agrees he shot him, and why he wasn't convicted of murder, I don't know. But uh, anyway, that uh, so we have railroad, we talk about railroads, we talk about the Civil War, we have about 150 uh, Civil War veterans buried there. And Well, right in the southeast corner of Hope Cemetery, you will find three government markers. One says John Kite, one other one says John Kite. Uh, both of those say 102nd Illinois Volunteer Infantry, and the other one says unknown U.S. soldier. And uh, you might think it's a duplication that the government set too many stones or something, but there was a John Kite, the father, and John Kite, the son, and the father and son both went into the 102nd Illinois Volunteer Infantry. Well, the son was thought to be killed in action, but 
At that time, you didn't have uh, embalming unless uh, there, there were trading bombers. The government didn't provide it unless there was money. Um, oftentimes, bodies could not be collected quickly because of danger, because battles were still going on. So uh, decomposed bodies are hard to identify. But a body was sent back to Galesburg, believing to be the younger John Kite, and they buried this one. And uh, they were astonished when at the end of the war, the younger John Kite made it back to Galesburg. So then at that point, they knew they had an unknown U.S. soldier. There was no way. Uh, during the Civil War, there were no dog tags, as they were sometimes referred to. They started those in World War I, uh, where a metal identification tag was worn around the neck. Uh, none of that in the Civil War. There were a few ID tags. Uh, if you had them made privately, they would have brass tags riveted into the waistband of your pants, but very few. That was an extra expense that most people didn't, didn't just didn't spend the money for that. So anyway, there's John Kite, and eventually the father, John Kite, and he also got a government marker. He died later on. But the story that goes with it, and it's just a story, but it's kind of uh, interesting that Supposedly, John, the younger John, had um, uh, uh, was courting a young woman, and they had plans to be married when he returned. And uh, thinking he was dead, she went on and married another person. And when John Kite returned, uh, he was in ill health. And, and some say that when he found out his true love had married another, that he died of a broken heart. But he was probably already in ill health. I think the story goes that when he came back, he was on crutches. Yeah. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of stories like that. We have uh, some other, some black soldiers buried in Hope Cemetery. Uh, Moses Nelson's up in the front. Also has a monument at Linwood. I think there was some confusion uh, later on about where the monument should be and even over what regiment he was in. Uh, I feel he's in Hope Cemetery. Uh, we have uh, a man who was uh, George Williams, who was in the 54th Massachusetts, and many people have seen the movie Gory. Uh, Shaw's Regiment, it's sometimes called, Shaw's Brigade. Uh, if you've seen the movie Gory, you wouldn't think any, any of those people have survived, but he did. And, and there's even confusion about him. Some say he's buried at Fort Buford, uh, South Carolina, but I looked into it, and there are three, at least two, if not three, George Williams in the 54th Massachusetts. And we have, due to George Churchill, somebody else we should also talk about, a list of those coming from Galesburg, and that George Williams is listed in George Churchill's list, so I feel confident. We have another uh, fellow uh, there who was in a, a light artillery unit. His name's not coming to me right now. And then, of course, we want to mention Aunt Suki Richardson, Susan B. Richardson. She was um, sort of a slave. She was held, held uh, as an indentured servant, held against her will, uh, by a man who had brought her here as a slave uh, down in Randolph County, and she escaped. And she got up here, and some people in Knoxville were helping her. Uh, but then there were people sent by... Uh, her owner to uh, try to bring her back and they had to hide her in Galesburg and it went on and on she her children were taken away and returned to Randolph County she never saw those children again she did have some children later so it, it's really it's, it is a fugitive slave case 
and it's really uh, important to understand that even though Illinois was supposedly free of slavery, it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. And um, she stayed and settled in Galesburg, and she became part of the Underground Railroad and helped others. Love to hear about, uh, I know, uh, Post. Yes. I would love to hear about that for, of course, uh, Post, uh, the building here on Knox's campus. Sure. And this gets into women's studies, too, because uh, it's not just, we can talk about the Post family, but it is Janet Grieg Post, that person. Uh, who was the great philanthropist who did so much for Knox College and why we have post-residence hall here. Uh, yes, her father-in-law, Philip Sidney Post, uh, was uh, a hero in the Civil War. He was wounded twice, both times dragged off the battleground. He was a colonel who led at the front, not from behind. He was in the onslaught of the charges. Uh, um, later became a congressman. Well, he even before then, he was uh, uh, in the consul at Vienna, Austria, to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and his son, Philip Sidney Post, Jr., of course, went to Knox College. And uh, so did Janet Grieg from Oneida. And they met here, and they married, and moved to Chicago for a while. Philip Sidney Post, uh, Jr., was... Uh, Council, general counsel to the International Harvester Company. In other words, uh, he was their lawyer uh, and uh, uh, would have been friends with Pullman and so forth. And then he died fairly young. Janet Grieg Post uh, maintained her home out at Oneida, the family home. It was after his death, not immediately, but soon after. Then she occupied uh, a seat on the board of trustees. He had until his death. And uh, it was really her vigor and interest in Knox College and her philanthropy that we want to remember. And yes, all of those people I've mentioned are buried in Hope Cemetery. And uh, I'm glad we remember them here at Knox College. Looking at Hope as a whole then, uh, who would you say buried out there is most nationally recognizable somebody who had some sort of business or some sort of invention or maybe just somebody who may have been considered a celebrity in their time like is there anybody that comes to mind yes uh probably the one i would think of um uh edgar bancroft knox college alum became an attorney was first an attorney here in galesburg uh he moved to chicago I forget which, uh, he may have also been uh, somewhat affiliated with International Harvester, but he was a corporate attorney. Where he became more recognizable was later. He did an investigation of the Pullman strike. He then sold his investigation, had it published in book form and sold it, to other attorneys, so because many, many attorneys were involved, they wouldn't have to individually conduct their own uh, investigations. So that got him some national attention. They had the race riots in Chicago in uh, 1919, and he was the head of the commission to investigate the race riots. The result of that book, uh, the result of that investigation was a very large book and, uh, on race relations in Chicago. And uh, what I find interesting about that book, it's one of the first studies of its type in America that's using the fairly new social science of sociology. 
uh, as a framework uh, for their investigation and for their analysis and their, for their reports. Uh, so he gained some recognition there. He went on then soon after to become ambassador to Japan in 1924, and he died uh, in Japan. He was only there shortly. He died in Japan in 1924. But anyway, short of a while, and when he was brought back, it was one of the largest funerals in Galesburg, and yes, uh, it was something that was in national news since he was an ambassador to Japan. Wow. That's one I had not heard of before. Um, I can only imagine what a large funeral procession would look like at Hope because it is a fairly tight cemetery. It would be. And the parade was in town. How much actually happened at Hope Cemetery, I don't know. But the same with George W. Prince. He died in office while a congressman. And that would have drawn national attention. And that was a very large, uh, large uh, funeral. Yeah. You know, when I was, uh, I, I'd be remiss not to ask this. Um, when I was in uh, Boston, fish, visiting Boston, we were visiting uh, close to Halloween. And um, we did a uh, quote unquote haunted tour of Boston. It started in a graveyard and we looked at some uh, uh, graves of notable people and kind of did that sort of thing. Is there any sort of history of that vein maybe um, that you might consider like the uh, haunted tour of, of the cemetery? Anybody that comes to mind when that sort of thing is brought up? There have been groups who do haunted tours. Uh, those are not part of the board of Hope Cemetery. There are people who have that interest, and uh, there have been haunted tours of Hope Cemetery given. Um, I don't know really who they focus upon. I was, in, I was part of one that was given uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now probably, uh, near Halloween time. And uh, oh, I think uh, we didn't do costumes for that one. We just portrayed as though we were speaking from the grave, sort of in the uh, style mm. of Spoon River Anthology. Um, th but there is great interest in that. Mm-hmm. Is there any, so there's no one you could point to specifically who people ask you about typically or any names out there that kind of come up during that sort of, sort of uh, topic? Nothing comes to mind. There's a fictitious one uh, uh, about half man and half dog that's supposed <laughs> to be buried in Hope Cemetery and died, died along the side of a railroad track and great stories. But uh, There's a grave that people point to? I think they do. They must. I don't yeah. know that spot. There wouldn't be a marked grave. It'd be a, an area they go to, I guess, that they believe has to do with this half man, half dog, half wolf, whatever he's supposed to be. Well, in in general, then, as you had mentioned, the cemetery board, um, you know, I'd, I think there is an importance in, of course, there's an importance in the work that you and everybody who helps with the cemetery itself locally, what you do. Um just speaking broadly, then, from your perspective, uh, you know, there's not many people in, t in this city who have a better perspective than you. Um, what is the importance of keeping this cemetery, any kind of cemetery, you know, supporting them, making sure they can be maintained, making sure these histories live on? Well, uh, let's just say we've only touched on maybe roughly 5% of the interesting people buried in Hope Cemetery. Exactly. Uh, we've got the inventor of the snowblower buried it there and his monument is deteriorating way his name was riley root one of the founders uh and the snowblower original snowblower was a huge machine that went on the front of a railroad engine 
and it was to clear tracks because they had trouble with snow plows on steel wheels on snow and ice, seal on steel, trying to push that snow plow. Um, uh, they ran into problems, and especially if, a, if an engine got stuck, uh, they had to shovel it out by hand uh, because you can't ram a snow plow up against a snow. Uh, you have you have a, a collision. Uh, so this huge thing that he invented that went on the front of a train is, a, is the fan inside of a cage, which is the snowblower. I remember Herman Milder, and I want to mention Herman Milder. I owe so much to him. Um, he, he gave me one idea. He was my history professor here at Knox, and one of the things he said about the people who came out here and settled Knox College and settled this area, created Knox College, he said they saw the frontier much like an infant an infant needs to be raised, and they wanted to make sure the infant was raised right. And I, it's, it's always stayed with me, and I think that's a, a good way of uh, summing up their intent, why they came here. One of the remarks that Herman Milder used to make was that uh, when Galesburg started, uh, it was very disproportionately large in the number of clergymen. Uh, for a village of 232, you probably only really need one clergyman, and they had eight or ten, I don't remember the exact number. And then he said to, when he would say, oh, they just had too many clergymen, they said, oh, I didn't mean it to sound that way. My own dear father was a Methodist minister. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, you know, we have that. Then, to go on, what is it about keeping up a cemetery? Well, we should keep up all cemeteries. It reflects on a community how well the cemeteries are cared for. And especially when it's the founders and uh, the shakers and the movers, uh, that cemetery should especially never have gotten into the condition it was in the late 1970s. Um, but it was like many people just thought, well, it was somebody else's responsibility. There are still people who think that it is the responsibility of the city of Galesburg to maintain Hope Cemetery, and it is not. Uh, it would be nice if we could get help. That would be appreciated. But it is uh, a not-for-profit. It's actually under the IRS code. Technically, it's a 501c13, and I like to joke about the 13 being a special chapter for cemeteries. Uh, but anyway, the, um, uh, it's, a, it's private but not-for-profit, and we have some trust funds, um, not quite adequate some years. The earnings are supposed to cover all the mowing, pruning, trimming, and so forth that the cemetery association is responsible for. Um, and uh, some years it falls short. Uh, earnings might not be quite what they were, and inflation uh, raises the cost of taking care of the cemetery. But yes, it's very important. I, I, a personal thing, and I was taken to cemeteries by my parents when I was very young, and uh, it was explained to me about the importance of taking care of cemeteries. So I have a little different personal twist on it. But we have found the outpouring of the community was tremendous. When we asked for help, we got help, and, I, and we still do. We still get donations, and sometimes we get donations from people who don't live in the area because they know they have ancestors buried here. So there is interest in Hope Cemetery. Um, and... Uh, we have confidence that what funding is needed uh, can be raised. And what and what would you say for those who maybe listened 
to this and are inspired to help? Is it monetary donation, hours of volunteer work? What, what is most useful? Uh, monetary at this point, uh, the cemetery is in such good condition right now uh, that we really aren't using too much of the volunteer help. We did have a cleanup days. We had a good turnout. Um, it was productive, but um, truthfully, it's, it's monetary at this point. Uh, we have an excellent groundskeeper, uh, Mike Sargent, who brings his relatives and others down there, uh, does a fine job of, of taking care of the cemetery. We're very happy with him. But, you know, he's faced with rising costs, too, and we have to take care of him. Rex, you are a wealth of information. I mean, you are, it's incredible. I can't believe your um, uh, brain isn't uh, poking through your head <laughs> with how much you lock away in there. It's incredible. Hopefully we can have you on for another episode here and we can go through the other 90% of the cemetery and the amazing stories that are out there. Well, your words are very kind and there's really nothing more. Uh, I enjoy nothing more than talking about our local history. I really do. It's it's a passion for me. Well, for anybody who's listening and wants to uh, uh, get a tour, is there a best way to contact you? Uh, yeah, uh, rex.charrington, C-H-E-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, at gmail.com uh, is the best way. Um, I don't always pay attention to the phone. I eventually get people called back, but email's the best way. Perfect. Well, Rex, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome, and thank you for having an interest in this. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. We hope you enjoyed this two-part series with Rex. He really is a one-of-a-kind person, and Galesburg is lucky to have him. A big thank you as well to the Knox Jazz Program for providing the music for our intro and outro. If you have any thoughts about today's episode, or any episode, or have an idea for a great next guest, email us at knoxcast at knox.edu. Thanks for listening.